In recent years, there has been a considerable amount of criticism of our educational system here in the United States and, in fact, across the Western world. And if you are a teacher, you well know that it's hard to take some of this criticism. Sometimes people accuse teachers of dumbing down the curriculum or of uh, making social promotions of students in order to uh, make up for the increasingly poor test scores and other indicators of student performance. I I cannot speak to the accuracy of these assertions. The teachers that I know are incredibly diligent, faithful folks. But I will confess to being a little bit worried by the proposed change of terminology that has been under study by a particular group of educators. According to ABC News, Great Britain's Professional Association of Teachers, PAT for short, contemplated eliminating the word fail from classrooms. They just thought this word should be taken out of the vocabulary of our educational system. They want to replace it instead with the phrase deferred success. (laughs) That would be a much better way of describing it. The theory is that banning negative language will help avoid the lasting problems associated with the labeling of pupils. Now, I have some sympathy for inappropriate labeling of people. I think it can do a lot of damage. I don't want to take that lightly. But I got to thinking about the implications of this sort of pat approach, as I'll call it, to other areas of life. This kind of pat speak applied to other spheres of our life. What if, in order to protect the feelings of pilots and the sentiments of the public, we just eliminated the term plane crash from FAA accident reports and simply spoke of incomplete landings? Would that be good? Suppose we got rid of the term child abuse altogether and talked instead of unrealized child care. Would that really be better for us? Would it help to make passengers or kids safer if we were to change the terminology in these ways, just to make it gentler? And what if we applied the PAT approach to the sphere of religion and ethics? Suppose we just stopped using terms like selfishness or lying or cheating or lusting or unforgiving and spoke instead simply of delayed obedience. Hey, it's not moral failure when I curse somebody out or when I love booze more than people or when I spend more on my personal entertainments than I do on charity towards others. It's actually just my deferred righteousness showing. This is the kind of of easy speak increasingly common in our culture today. But as Marty Piper suggests, this pat approach, while appearing to be kind and considerate, actually has farther reaching consequences than merely producing more unsuccessful students. It fosters a mentality that that leaves people ill-equipped to compete or to really thrive in today's world. And sometimes we actually need hard words in order to help us to face hard issues, for it's in facing those issues squarely that we become open to their real remedy. 
there were a great deal of problems afoot in the early first century, just as there are in our time. And if you had interviewed the average person in the street of Jerusalem, per se, they might have said that the problem in Israel that day was its deferred potential. Israel had been slated by the prophets for such greatness, and yet it seemed that that future had been denied. It had been suppressed in some way. If you ask people, why is Israel's potential deferred? You might have heard a set of common answers. Taxes are too high. Caesar's taxes are way too high, some people would have certainly said. Or the Roman government. It's, it's so intrusive. It's, it's gotten into every sphere of life. They're everywhere around us these days. If you look, you'll see them, these soldiers of the government. Or there are too many immigrants crossing our borders from Africa and Arabia and Syria and Turkey. There are so many freeloaders and culture diluters here in Israeli society today. Some would have said, oh, it's, the problem is the wealthy have all the power. Or the land is being raped of its resources. Or people aren't concerned about their neighbors the way they used to be, the way they should be. It's not a stretch of imagination at all to say that these sort of things appeared to the first century person to be the major problems, the, the things responsible for the deferred potential of the nation, just as in our time they often appear to be the, the main problems uh, in, in our time. And there are issues. They are, these things are all issues, the th- stuff I've just listed. They're genuine topics of concern. They're just not the core issue. They're not the core issue. They're not the thing that deserves the most significant focus in in our age, as in the first century. If you'd gone out into the wilderness beyond Jerusalem, if you'd gotten out of the, the common street and gone out to that place where a passionate prophet by the name of John was drawing an expanding audience of followers, you'd have heard a very different explanation given of the nation's problem. The core issue, said John, is that we are sinners in need of repentance. The core problem here in Israel is that we have fallen so deeply into sin. And until this gets washed away, until this gets baptized out of our life, we're not going to see the correction that our nation needs. We're not going to see us fulfilling anything like the potential we could have. You may spin the terminology or dilute the language any way you like, John was saying in effect, but beneath all of the political and the social issues of our time lies a spiritual one. The core issue is that we no longer have the spiritual or moral strength to solve our country's problems. We don't have the vision. We don't have the fiber to solve the problem. Alienated from our creator, our character has gotten compromised progressively. We have gotten too wrapped up in our own comforts. We've gotten too comfortable with our own convenient rationalizations. We've grown too unwilling to make deep sacrifices like prior generations have. We have become too hard-hearted toward one another and weighed down by so many little moral failures and far too little rest. We increasingly are looking to our drugs and our distractions for some kind of relief. But like Israel of old, what we most need is to repent. We most need 
repentance. We need to be stopped in our tracks and forced to look deeply at ourselves, at our own hearts and at their condition, and then turn those hearts toward God and to humbly beg for his forgiveness and for his divine help. This is our most profound need. This is why the opening text or the opening line of John's message was repent. This is why the opening text of Jesus' message was repent, stop, turn around, turn your heart towards God, ask for his forgiveness, beg for his help. Look, says John, turn toward the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For things to get better in this great school we call life, we cannot treat sin with a pat approach. I know this is a very uh, incorrect political statement. I know this is something that's probably already making some people clench. Oh no, why did I come to church today? Why did I tune in today? But we cannot treat sin with a pat approach if we're going to see progress The kind of progress that our best we all long to see. Sin has to be named for what it is. It is the core problem of humanity. It is the serious condition uh, that is responsible for the failure to have the kind of life we want or the kind of world that we could. Each of us has to deal with the reality of sin on a personal level first. Every one of us has got to, to really look inside of our own hearts. I have got to acknowledge that it is the unfinished, broken, uh, selfish nature of my own character that is a major part of what stops my family or my workplace or my church or nation from being what it could be. If I want to see things to start to get better out there, then I need to start in here. I need to turn toward Christ. And I ask him, need to ask him to forgive me and to free me and to set me on a new path that I live differently. The good news that John the baptizer points us toward is that in Jesus Christ, God has made that kind of new life completely possible. You know, it is possible for my character to change, for a new beginning to occur. On the cross, Jesus became the sacrificial lamb by whose blood the price of sin was paid, the debt of sin was wiped away the power of sin to finally define or defeat us was completely broken. And the good news is that now, whoever turns to Jesus in humble repentance can find complete forgiveness and a new beginning to his or her life. That's the good news. That's the wonderful news. Have you found it for yourself? Have you found that forgiveness and that new beginning for yourself? If not, let today be the day you do. Let, be, let the, this be the day where you turn to God, you turn your heart towards him, and you say, Lord, please forgive me. Forgive me for the sins that I'm aware of, and forgive me for all the stuff I'm, I've been living in for so long, I'm not even aware of it any longer. Lord, forgive me and help me to start a new journey with you today. Let today be the day you ask that of God, if you've not asked it of him. I believe that the reason we celebrate this weekend the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. 
is because he understood the importance of this. There are a lot of reasons to support the celebration of this national holiday. It's, it's a good idea in so many ways, but one of them is because Dr. King got all this. Okay? He got all this. He got the truth that our nation's problems could not be treated with a pat approach. Dr. King saw that the divisions and the difficulties that were going on in America were fundamentally spiritual problems, long before they became social problems. As a Korean scholar of Dr. King's life has observed time and time again, people around him would try to reduce his movement to things like achieving black freedom or or, or winning equal rights. People are always labeling that as, as what Dr. King was really all about. But as commendable as those ends might be, Dr. King kept reminding his followers that this was not their primary goal. This was never their primary goal. They were out for nothing less, and I quote, to save the soul of America. That's what he cared most about, to see a spiritual renewal of America. Because only a spiritual awakening, he was convinced, could bring about a lasting social renewal. Like John the Baptist before him, Martin Luther King urged people to follow the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But King also understood that once we begin to deal with sin at a personal level, Once God really begins to work on our heart and baptizes us into the new life of his kingdom, we will no longer so easily be able to tolerate the stain of sin on the public level. The personal transformation will begin to to usher forth a passion for a social and and, and a wider public transformation. The more connected with God we become, the more we find our own self-sealed, self-securing focus being replaced by God's outgoing concern for the welfare of other people. It will be one of the greatest marks that there has been a personal conversion, that there will be a passion now for a public transformation as well. I know that has been true for me. I know I've been following Jesus for a long, long time, but the further I've walked with him, the more and more I find my heart turned outwards towards the things of this world around us. I think that's true for a lot of you uh, that have been walking a long time. You find yourself inflamed with a concern and a passion for the condition of this world beyond your own home. The more I've walked with Jesus, the more I have my heart broken by the things that break his, as the founder of World Vision, Bob Seiple, once famously said. And one of the things that God has given me a particular ache about in recent years, was just the profound disunity between churches, black, white, uh, Hispanic, of every kind. I just, I began several years ago to be disturbed more and more by the disunity between uh, Christians uh, in, in the world. I would drive by all of these churches in our own area, and I would think to myself, gosh, these are my brothers and sisters, and I don't even know them. These are people that are following the same God, who are inflamed by the same Holy Spirit, and I don't even have a relationship with them. We're all branches of the same company, in a sense, right? All of these churches branch offices of the one great company, the one great CEO. Why aren't we praying for one another? 
Why aren't we caring about the end of quarter results in each one of these different offices? Why don't we see that our stake is in something together? Why aren't we praying for each other in the face of the huge needs of our world? Why aren't we working together more intentionally and collaboratively? So God wouldn't let me rest and he led me to start a stealth campaign. I've never even talked about it from this place. But he just pushed me on this stealth campaign. I'd be driving along. I'd be going on a, on a mission to Target <laughs> or an errand to the dry cleaner. And I would, he would shake me up and I'd be passing a church and I'd turn into the parking lot. And I'd walk in and I'd say hello to the pastor. I'd introduce myself to the pastor or to the staff or to the secretary who was ever there. They'd look a little concerned. Who is this guy? What's he all about? There was a lot of suspicion at the start. But I then began doing this more and more. And then I started to make appointments for coffee or breakfast or lunch with pastors of churches in the area around us here and and with the pastors of every single large church in our county. And we've got a lot of them. And I would try and get on their calendar. It took me months to get onto the calendars of these senior pastors. They are a feisty, difficult bunch, senior pastors. (laughs) And they were always really concerned, who is this guy again? What's he want? And I said, I just want to know you. I just want to know how I can pray for you. And um, how we might walk alongside of each other and have a common cause. And, And I began to invite them to come back and meet some of the others that I was meeting And and over time, these wonderful relationships began to form across denominational lines. And and I'm now the convener of of two different groups of pastors, one local group right here in the Oak Brook-Hinsdale area and Clarendon Hills, and and, and another one out in the western part of of our county with a lot of really phenomenal, strong churches there. And we meet on a regular basis now to share what's going on in life, to pray for each other. And to start to talk about how we can collaborate in doing the work of the kingdom together. What if five years from now there was not just, there were not hundreds of little and and alternative churches in in this county. What if there was in effect one church on the move together to address the needs and the opportunities of our time? Well, a few weeks ago we we all came together. There were 57 of us that came together right here uh, in the basement at Christ Church. And we got together to face the brutal fact that some of the worst poverty in the state of Illinois is right here in DuPage County. We are the wealthiest county in the entire Midwest, and some of the worst poverty in the entire state is is right here now uh, in DuPage. And so the pastors came together and, and some of their key leaders to start talking about how we might become united in, in addressing this? How could we mobilize the tens of thousands of Christians that we're connected to in our church to eradicate the effects of poverty in our county over these coming years? How could we bring the life-changing love to people who really need it? And I discovered in the course of our inquiry that two of the most um, devastating areas of suburbanized poverty are within a stone's throw of our congregation of our church right here. Two of the most pressing areas of need and opportunity are not far from here. This past Tuesday, I heard of the story of a little boy in one of those neighborhoods. 
And I was gathered with a group of, of the pastors from our local area, and we were talking with some people that have started working in one of these particular neighborhoods, and they told us this story. This little boy lives in a single-parent family. And um, uh, in the past uh, number of months, a volunteer mentor from one of the local churches has been coming into that home to do tutoring and, and caregiving and to provide support and encouragement uh, in, in that family. And the little boy confided very recently to his mom that until Joe came along, and that's the name I'll, I'll give to the volunteer, until Joe came along, he did not know that there were not men, that there were men who didn't hurt and hit um, women and children. Until Joe came along, he didn't even know they existed, men that, 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 that brought blessing and not pain. How many kids like that young boy are out there, I wonder. Uh, how many of them are out there uh, within our reach? What happens to a kid who grows up with abusers and addicts and exhausted, despairing adults as their primary mentors? What happens to those kids? They often become repeaters of the same pattern, right? They often just fall into the same cycle, and it just repeats itself generation after generation. What difference would it make if the next generation of poor kids in our county grew up with different kinds of role models? What if thousands of followers of Jesus were mobilized to come alongside of those kids? And what if you and what if I could find some way, some time, some slot to be one of them? To be one of those people God sends into that place of need and opportunity. Dr. King once wrote, From time immemorial, people have lived by the principle that self-preservation is the first law of life. But this is a false assumption, he said. I would say that other preservation is the first law of life. It is the first law of life precisely because we cannot preserve self without being concerned about preserving other selves. A society that turns entirely into individualistic self-focus will ultimately produce so many of those children we've just described that they will overrun us. They'll over, they will, it, it, it will ultimately end up destroying us as well as destroying them. The first law of life is that we cannot preserve self without being concerned about preserving other selves. The universe is so structured, says King, that things go awry if men are not diligent in their cultivation of the other regarding dimension. I cannot reach fulfillment without thou. The self cannot be self in the healthiest sense without other selves. Jesus put it this way. Jesus put it this way when he was asked what the greatest commandment, the greatest directive of life was. Love God, the ultimate other. Love him with everything you are. And love others as if they were you. That's the Dan Meyer paraphrase of it. Love God with everything that you are. And love others as if they were you. What kind of a world could we make? What kind of a world could we shape if we 
followed Jesus' instruction there with everything we have. Dallas Willard, the, the late great USC philosopher, once remarked that it's regretful that the, the Lord is my shepherd is written on many more tombstones than lives. But we could be the exception to that. We could dedicate ourselves in this new year to following the good shepherd with the kind of obedient courage that was displayed by Peter and Andrew and Martin Luther King and Maggie Gobron and many other people that we could name who have followed his calling and been used to bless this world in remarkable ways. So let me close today by encouraging you to make your own a wonderful prayer that is contained in the words of the old hymn, Rock of Ages. We're going to sing it in just a moment. I want to pay special attention to this important phrase, phrasing. The text says, let the water and the blood from, from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Let's seek that double cure in these days to come. If you've never done so before, ask God to save you from the wrath of judgment against sin. Put your trust, not in your goodness, but in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then secondly, if you've done that already, Ask the good shepherd to make your heart pure like his is. Pray that your life may become increasingly less and less about preserving self, securing self. He never did this. He did just the opposite, right? This Lord that we're following. He gave himself away. He stepped out in search of the poor and the lost and the struggling and the hurting. Make your, pray that your life will be less about preserving self, more and more about lifting up others. There's not a pat solution to the sin that afflicts our personal and our public life today. There's not a pat solution to it. No tinkering with terminology, no running after superficial fixes will be enough to repair what most deeply ails us. But in Jesus Christ, Christians, in Jesus Christ, there is a double cure. Please pray with me. Lord God, there are some of us who have been bystanders in the entire enterprise of the disciples' life. We have, we have attended church. We've, we've watched other people living it out. We've been touched at times, stirred and moved enough to get us out here. But in many, many ways, we have not acknowledged the depth of our need. We have trusted in our righteousness, in our being better than other people, in our list of good deeds. We thought that would be sufficient to justify ourselves before you. You are a holy God. You are a a magnificent, perfect God. And we know that it is not 
by our righteousness, but by Christ alone that we can be saved. And so some of us today, Lord, seeing that, recognizing that, turn our hearts towards you, repent of the path of self-focus and self-sealing that has been too much our story. Repent, Lord, of those things which have dragged us down, disfigured our character, hurt our relationships. We turn, Lord, today from those things, and we ask you, forgive us. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Grant us a new start. Set us on the path of discipleship. Today we pray. Lord, you know that there are others of us who have been on that path. But that that path has been so personal, it's just lacked a public dimension. We just can't point to people outside of our own homes that we've led to Christ, uh, that we have, have seen transformation happen in because of our own personal efforts and engagement. Help us, Lord, follow you in a deeper measure like those disciples we've talked about today have. And show us, Lord God, that you're not doing, done using ordinary people for these extraordinary purposes. And enable us, Lord God, through this personal and this public uh, transformation to see your great purposes go forward in this world. For we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.